Well, good morning. kind of dive into a hard text, uh, actually a lot of text, and we're just want to give you a heads up. I'm not going to be able to cover all of it. We're going to be able to read all of it, and I'm going to hit bits and pieces of it, um, and there's so much to really draw out here, but I want to just really kind of pull out a couple main things really about who Christ is and, and really about who we are. Um, so... I'm going to go through and read first. John 6 is where we're going to be at, starting with verse 22. And I'm going to read all the way to verse 71. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea was, saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, But my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing for all that he has given me. But raise it it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble amongst yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, 
and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your father ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for, their, for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed amongst themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Lord, I just pray that um, your word would go forth with power this morning, that it would go forth um, in truth, that you would really bring clarity to my words, and Lord, that you would make this about you and not about me. Um, Lord, I pray that, that we would walk away challenged, maybe we would walk away encouraged, um, but ultimately that we would walk away seeing the glory and beauty of of the bread of life, that Jesus Christ, our life-giving sustainer, Lord. We, we want to see you as that this morning, and we trust you to do that work as 
we just read here, you, you are doing that work. Your Father is doing that work. And we pray today, Lord, that you give us that bread that we may eat and that we may live forever and that it would be all satisfying to our souls, that it would be something that we desire above all other things, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Some of you may have uh, read the book Radical by David Platt. And I, I wanted to just throw this in here about this text because I love what he has to say about it. He's not really going to go into anything in depth. It was just more of a side note in the book. But I, I just love it. He says, whenever the crowd got big, Jesus, he, he would say something such as, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink my blood, you have no life in you. Not exactly the sharpest church growth tactic. I can almost picture the looks on the disciples' faces. No, not the drink my blood speech. We'll never get on the list of the fastest growing movements if you keep asking them to eat you. By the end of the speech, all the crowds had left and only the 12 men remained. Jesus apparently wasn't interested in marketing himself to the masses. His invitations to potential followers were more costly than the crowds were willing to accept. And he seemed to be okay with that. He focused instead on the few who believed him when he said radical things. And through their radical obedience to him, he turned the course of history in a new direction. And so we're going um, to dive into this text this morning and we're going to see why, why would somebody like David Platt say that this is a radical message that turns people away from following Jesus Christ. Um, you might say... That are you going to preach something that's going to scare people off? And maybe that might be the case. You may walk away from here and you may desire never to come back. But my hope is that you leave here uh, instead challenged to see the other side of this story, the side that draws people in to who Jesus Christ is. And, and embrace really the joy of following Jesus Christ as the life-giving sustainer of what we learned this on Wednesday night, the sustainer of everyone and everything. So you, you have a choice this morning. You can walk away and say, I'm done with that stuff. Or you can walk away and say that Jesus is this life-giving sustainer. And I want my life to be dedicated to knowing that Christ, knowing this side of who God is. Um, before we get into this massive text, let's talk about what happens before this. Um, at the beginning of chapter 6, and these are all things that we're familiar with. Jesus has been going around, um, speaking to the people, calling them to follow him, to believe, to repent, and to trust in him for eternal life. And along the way, he's also doing miracles or signs, and these things are validating all his claims they're validating his worthiness. They're validating his power and his divinity. He's ultimately validating who he is and why they should follow him. So keep this in mind. A sign in a general sense, we all know what signs are. We see them everywhere we go. A sign in a general sense is a sign because it points us in the direction of something. Or they can tell us something about a person or a place. When you drive down the interstate and you're going towards the Shady Spring direction, you might see a sign that says Beaver or um, Airport Road exit. And we know that, that we get off here at this exit, this is going to take us to Beaver. This is going to take us to Airport Road. 
You see a sign here on the front of the building. It says Living Truth Fellowship. It tells us something about this building. Living Truth Fellowship meets here. And so just keep that in mind as we work through here. Miraculous signs, they're really no different. They point us in the direction of someone or they tell us something about a person. So in the first 15 verses here of John 6, Jesus gives this massive crowd of people, over 5,000 people we read, a sign to teach them something about who he is and what he came to do. So he's pointing them in the direction of himself. We, we see the crowd gathering there, and the next thing that we see is there's a concern by the 12 disciples to feed all of these people. How are we going to take care of these people? And we all know what happens next. The boy has a basket of five loaves of bread and two fish, and Jesus blesses it, and um, he takes this small amount of food and miraculously multiplies it to feed this entire crowd of people. And so much so that they didn't just eat. It says that they ate until they were full. And not only full, but there were 12 baskets of bread left over. Some say that that was uh, one basket for each of the 12 disciples. And then after all this, Jesus, he decides to leave. Because according to verse 15 of 6 there, he, he could tell it says that they are about to come and take him by force and make him king. And it says Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. I love what John Piper says about this. He says, when the crowd saw the loaves and felt the pleasures of a full stomach and thought about what it would be like to have a king who could fill their stomach like that every day, they were thrilled. I mean, can you imagine that? They're looking for this king. They're looking for this coming Messiah. And they're kind of looking towards Jesus for that. And they see this man who provides miraculously. They get their bellies full. And, and they're just thinking about what is the future going to be like? If he can do this, what else can he do? What else can he give us? And so they're thrilled about it. And that's why Jesus leaves. Because he can tell they're, they're, they're going to take him by force. So he withdraws. And it says he goes to the mountain. And at this point, um, later on that evening... We see the story of him crossing the Sea of Galilee. <clears throat> now, we know from the story here, the disciples, they're about three or four miles out into the sea. The wind is rough and the sea is rocking. And all of a sudden, the disciples see something that looks like a man coming towards the boat. And it tells us that there was fear that came over them, and rightfully so. You don't see a man walking on the water every day. And, you know, intensify that with the fact that the boat's rocking. And I was looking at pictures at some of the, uh, the fishing boats during that time period. And it was hard to really get a sense of how big they were. But they put me in mind of like a really big john boat with a sail on it. You know, so you can imagine being out three or four miles in the middle of the sea in, a, you know, a giant-sized john boat rocking everywhere. And all of a sudden you see this man walking on water. There's fear there. And until they find out that it's Jesus. And they, he comes aboard, calms their fears, and they, they move on and they end up in Capernaum. And this brings us to where we're at this morning. What I want to do is just take the time to draw your attention really to two things. The crowd that remained and Jesus. So first we're going to talk a little bit about the crowd that remained. 
um, starting at verse 22. So some of the crowd was still there the next day, still there meaning from the place where Jesus was feeding this multitude of people. Some of them were still there the next day. And they got up that day and they set out on a mission. And it was a mission to find Jesus. So what can we learn about this crowd here? Well, there's two things. Um, there's lots of things we can learn, as I've already said. But there's two big things here that I really want you to kind of focus on. That they were seekers and that they were workers. Um, specifically, they were seekers with an appetite. Now, verse 24 tells us that they went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. So what are they seeking exactly in Jesus? Well, there's a few things that kind of stood out to me. The, the, they're seeking the man that they called Rabbi, verse 25. So they're seeking Jesus to have their minds filled by this teacher, by this rabbi. Rabbi means just that, teacher. So they're coming seeking this man that they're calling their teacher. We see that they were seeking to have their minds filled because they're going to have lots of questions as this kind of this conversation between Jesus and the crowd progresses. But their questions were really motivated not out of a desire to know the truth, but rather a motivation for the other thing that they were seeking. They were seeking Jesus to have their bellies full. Verse 26, it says that they had their fill of the loaves. Now, think about this word seeking for a minute. Seeking can mean two things in the Greek. It can mean that you're going after something. We understand that. We go seeking after something. We're just looking for it. It doesn't, you know, go any more in depth than that. Just going after something. Or it can be a little bit deeper than that and mean that you're going after a craving. So we have to kind of determine from the context what exactly is it. Is it just a simple, they're just seeking Jesus, they're just looking for him? Or are they going after a craving? And I believe it was much more than just simply looking for something. And here's why. Jesus says in verse 26, You seek because you ate and you were filled. The Greek word for filled, whether it's used in a physical sense or in a spiritual sense, means that whatever they were filled with was satisfying to them. They had their cravings and their desires satisfied. So they came seeking with a craving for more physical satisfaction. They came seeking because they ate and they were filled. They were satisfied. And that seems to be pretty clear from the context there. So we see that this, this, uh, the crowd that remained, they were seekers with an appetite. And the next thing I want to point out is that they were workers with a purpose. In verse 27, Jesus says, Do not work for the food that perishes. So we can imply from that that they were working from something. He's telling them not to work, so they, apparently they were working for something. And it was, it was no easy task for them to find Jesus. They wake up and he's traveled across the sea. He's not there. They don't really understand where he went because they saw his disciples leave. And when they left, there was only one boat, so where's Jesus now? So they've gone to great lengths. They've traveled a long way. Uh, and they came with a purpose to do whatever it took to find the man that could satisfy their cravings. So they're working. But their working is for personal gain. The Greek word for work could also be translated as labor. So a laborer, we know, we understand that. We work, we have jobs, we labor to earn something. They were seeking Jesus because 
of what was in it for them. They were working for something. So they had a pursuit of personal gain. Now I want to kind of give you a little bit of uh, background. Some of you have heard this before. I shared my testimony not too long ago, but why this text has been so important to me and really kind of why I'm still trying to figure it out. Um, But up to this point in my life, I can totally relate to what this crowd was doing. Back in, uh, it was like 98 or 99, I was kind of a pleasure seeker. I was seeking to have my physical needs satisfied in anything and everything that I could find. I wanted whatever I could, could find to satisfy these cravings, and it came in the form of premarital relationships, friendships, drugs and alcohol. Um, it never really was about money for me, as it may be for some of you, and a lot of people in the world pursue money. It couldn't have been money for me because I spent all my money on girls, drugs, and alcohol. Um, and then at that point, I found myself at a kind of a crisis. I found myself in debt to a drug dealer. And I really didn't have any way of paying him, so I, I just crashed and I hit rock bottom. And, you know, I had no way of really getting out of this situation that I was in. But I still had those cravings. I still had those desires. I still had needs that needed satisfaction. The things that I've, I've often told people that I thought I wanted back then was a nice home and a good job, a better life, wife and kids. All these things that, that I thought was really... I guess the American dream, you know, what we pursue after, what we're chasing after, laboring for. And as I looked at the mess that I was in, I knew I wasn't going to have that. I was either going to end up in jail or dead, so I set out seeking a new life. And can you guess where it began? A lot like this journey that we see these people on here. I went seeking after Jesus. I had people that I worked with that were Christians and they appeared to have a good life and I was looking for that and so I thought that Jesus must have given them that good life and if he can give them what they want then he can probably do the same for me. So I started to ask questions and then one day in the, uh, the meat cutting room there at Kroger's used to be where uh, I guess it's Big Lots now. I started working there when I was 15 years old and, you know, I want to say I didn't work my way up. There was no pay raise, but I worked my way into the meat department and was cutting meat there. And, um, you know, at the advice of a friend, I prayed that prayer, you know, Jesus come into my heart kind of prayer. And I don't want to make light of that because I believe that there are people that are truly born again. And that's what they said and what they did. Um, but that was, that was kind of it for me. And I, really, I was just seeking for Jesus to give me what I wanted, to fix my life. So I tried to follow that lifestyle for a while. And, um, you know, in addition to that, though, I continued pursuing my cravings, continued pursuing the things that would bring satisfaction to me. But rather than finding them in Jesus, I ended up really right back where I was at from the beginning, back on drugs and alcohol. Chasing after girls, but this time it was it was a little bit more responsible, I guess you could say, if that makes any sense. How could it be any more responsible? But I wasn't doing things like racking up debt with drug dealers. I was working a full-time job. I was paying my bills, and if I couldn't 
pay cash for the drugs. I didn't buy them kind of thing. I know this is all crazy, but apparently you can be a responsible druggie. I don't know how that works, but there was more responsibility in my life at this point. And and you know what? I, I wanted change. I really did. I wanted change. I wanted to be responsible, but it was so hard for me to get away from the life that I knew. And it, um, as I said, I got a full-time job, and I ended up getting married, and I had my own place. So it kind of started to look like some of the things that I was chasing after was starting to come together. So after about a year of that life, though my life flipped upside down again, and I hit rock bottom when I woke up one morning and, and my wife left with no other explanation, and she was doing things behind my back that I wouldn't want her to do. And, you know, I found out later that was heavier drugs than even I would touch and, of course, a relationship with somebody else. So my life, again, was, you know, back in seeker mode, I guess you could say. I'm looking for things to find satisfaction, to feel these holes, to feel this hurt and this pain that's in my life. And really, something else that I want you to understand, that it always kept me wanting more and more and more and more. So I kind of, at this point, laid low for a while, and then as time progressed, I met Angela. And, you know, as I was thinking through this, I've told this story time and time again, but I never really thought about it in this perspective. I met Angela on a blind date, and you know what? Guess where she was in life? She was trying to get out of a pastor of life, and she's now kind of looking to the same thing. She's seeking kind of after Jesus. She's... She's that person that's going, looking for answers, trying to figure this stuff out. And she's going to Daniel's Bible Church at that time, looking for those answers. And I started going with her. And we began to hear things about Jesus that I had never really heard before. And it wasn't the, 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 you know, the stuff, um, the fluff that makes you feel better in the end. The, the you know, kind of give me what I want kind of Jesus. It was really tough stuff. Like he wanted me to surrender all of my life to him. And that might mean that the only thing that I get out of this deal is him. And that Jesus alone was enough to satisfy all my cravings. And that he was the bread of life. He was the real pursuit. It wasn't all the stuff that he could give me. I wasn't necessarily promised, you know, a good life. I was promised a full life rooted in Christ. And that was it. No other guarantees. It was Jesus and that would be enough. And that's what I was offered. And, and what happens next was just as uh, Pastor Flager once told me, Christ could do far more than I could ever think or imagine. Not because of my working, not because of my seeking or pursuing after it, but because of His power at work in me. If you don't know, that's from Ephesians 3.20. And so my heart and my desires began to change. I didn't want all the stuff anymore. Um, all the so-called good, um, the good life stuff. The stuff to fill me and kind of satisfy my cravings. I just wanted Jesus. And one day, I don't even remember when it was, but I can remember vividly, really, my prayer to him was just, you know, my life is yours. You do whatever you want with me. And so, you know, what did that mean to me at that time? Well, if I get, if I get my desires... If I get the family, if I get the home, then so be it. 
as long as you're there. You know, if, if I didn't get those things, then so be it. As long as you're there. Wherever you want to take me, however you want to, you know, I mean, but for all I knew, my life could just continue to flip upside down even more than what it already was. But as long as Jesus was there, that's all I wanted. So why do I tell you all this about myself? Because I believe that although our stories may be different, we all have these same kind of cravings. Like the crowd that we've read about so far this morning, we're all in pursuit of having our minds filled. We're all in pursuit of having our bellies full, or the desires of our heart and the needs that we, we have met in some form or the other. In other words, we want what will make us happy. We want what will make us comfortable. We want to have the desires of our heart in some form or the other. So we all have cravings that turn our affections to finding satisfaction in things or circumstances that will make us feel better about the lives that we live. We, we're all in pursuit of the, the good life. And, you know, I, I used to hear that. There was, that. there was a guy, you guys may know who I'm talking about. There was a guy that went to Daniel's, and he, he wasn't doing anything wrong by this. But he used to always, every time he said, hey, how you doing? I'm living the good life. And I believe he was. I mean, this guy, he's a godly guy, and that was just the way that he kind of greeted people. But, you know, I've often thought about this idea of a good life, and I think that we're kind of missing the point a little bit of the good life. I think the good life really has become the pursuit of the physical things, the physical needs, the things that fill our cravings and fill our satisfactions. This might be out of some of your thinking because it's a stellar part song that I'm going to quote, but um, there's a song that's life is good, but eternal life is better. And that's the life that Jesus is offering to this crowd. It's something spiritual. It's not just simply a good life. Uh, it's not just a pursuit for something physical that's not going to last and leave them hungry and wanting more again and again and again and again. And then they die and haven't lost every bit of it. A quote that some of you may be familiar with, and I love this quote. It would seem, this is C.S. Lewis, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by offering a, ho a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. So everything that you are fooling about after, as Lewis says, maybe it's money or career or relationships, pornography, good kids, better husband, better wife, better circumstances, all these things that we think make us happy and fill us up and satisfy our cravings, they leave us wanting more and more and more and more. We're happy playing in the mud when he's offering us the beauty of the beach. So now we're going to turn back to the text and really focus in on Jesus here as we finish up. Jesus, the offer of real lasting satisfaction. Not just something that leaves us wanting more, but something that completely and fully satisfies all of our cravings now and forever. 
So back here in the text, we've looked at the crowd and we've looked at what they're after. And we'll talk about them more as we go along. But again, let's turn our our attention to Jesus and, and his response to them. So what is Jesus offering them? And one thing I want to point out is, is as he begins to respond to them, he starts, and he does this several times throughout. I'm not going to stop every time to point it out, but this one time he says, truly, truly, uh, where the Greek word here is amen, amen. And we're familiar with that. We say it every time we hear somebody say a prayer. The person that's praying the prayer says it, and we kind of follow in unison and say amen right after him. And so when this word is used at the end of something, like when we pray, it means let this be true or let this happen as you have said. Um, We may, a lot of times we probably just say it. Some of us may not even really know what it is. I went for a long time and had no clue. It's just what you did after you pray. Um, But ultimately it means that we agree with this prayer and it's our desire to petition God to make this a reality, make this happen, make it true. Now, when it's used at the beginning as it's used here by Jesus, it means what I'm about to say is truth. Uh, I was read this oh, was about a month ago. It wasn't even a month ago. It was like last week, I think. Um, but I've told my kids this several different times. When you see these words truly, truly, it, it's Jesus is, is saying that really we need to just be quiet and listen. And so... I want you to kind of have that mindset. That you should just focus your attention on what Jesus is saying about himself. I actually said to my kids, shut up and listen one time. And that, Daddy, tell people to shut up. <laughs> I was just trying to kind of intensify what it meant, how strongly it is. But he's saying, this is true. What I'm about to say to you is true. Listen to what I'm about to say. So they came seeking their, their physical needs and... Let me just add here that physical needs are, in most cases, legitimate needs. There are some things that we pursue after that that aren't. You know, there's things certainly that we seek to fill ourselves up with that are sinful. But we, we do have legitimate needs. We do have legitimate cravings. There's nothing wrong, you know, with our desire to want to eat. There's nothing wrong with wanting a better life or desiring to be happy. There's nothing wrong with wanting physical pain or, you know, emotional pain or the hurts that we have in our life. There's nothing wrong with wanting that to stop hurting. Um, But we must always put first things first. And the first thing is always going to be Jesus Christ. And we're going to find out why. John 6, 27. He says, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. So Jesus is using their cravings to redirect their pursuit or their labors to himself. If you want real life that endures, not just a life of living forever, work for true bread that gives eternal life. The Greek word for life here is zoe. It means a life that is found only in God. And it's, it's a life with God that lasts now and forever. He could have used the word bios for life, which is where we get the word biology. It's just the study of living things. The bios life is likened to the good life that we pursue. 
it leaves us saying things like Jason pointed out last week, you know, uh, and I don't think this is an exact quote, but things are going pretty good. I'm alive. You know, I'm living, I'm living the good life. You're saying you're basically just happy with being a living, breathing thing. As long as you're living and breathing, life is good. Everything's fine. And when we think about that in context of what we're reading today, it sounds even more ridiculous than Jason made it sound last week. It is ridiculous that we say things like that. He's wanting to offer us something more than just the ability to be happy and to live and to breathe and then just die. In John 17, uh, 1 through 3, Jesus prays this. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And now listen to verse 3. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the one true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So he is calling them here to pursue more than things that sustain their physical lives or even fill their bellies and leave them hungry again. He's, he's calling them to take hold of eternal life. And what does he tell us there in John 17, 3, that eternal life is? It's knowing God. So he's calling them to know. I want you to know me. I want you to know me and I want your joy and I want your satisfaction to be found in knowing me and knowing my son, Jesus Christ, whom I have sent. And over and over, we're going to see throughout here um, that he keeps emphasizing that point. I'm the one that's sent from God. I'm the one that's sent from God. He wants you to know him. That is eternal life. So the crowds, they soak it in. In verse 28, it seems that they feel their, they feel their minds. They're listening, but the truth is not penetrating their hearts. So they ask this question, what do we do? How do we work for God to get this life? And what is Jesus' answer in verse 29? Believe in me. So again, he's giving, redirecting their minds back to him. Believe in the one that is sent from God. Notice something else there. He says, this is the work of God that you believe. So this is the labor of God. It's not your working that will get you this eternal life. It's God's work. Now, remember their focus was, what do I do? What do I do? They come seeking, laboring to find this man to fill their, their needs, to satisfy their cravings. And, you know, and he just points out, this is the work of God. What, it's the work of God that you believe. God is working. He sent me and he's working. And his working also has purpose. What is that purpose? Jesus continues through the rest of the chapter to spell this out. Again, truly, truly, listen up. Verse 32, my father gives true bread. The one that comes down and gives life, he's saying. The crowd says, verse 31, sir, give us this bread always. Now, this might be a mute point. I don't know. It stood out to me, and I really kind of thought it was kind of funny. You know, they're asking, and we have this idea of them laboring and them pursuing and them seeking, and Jesus is replying, and they're continuing to ask questions, and then they say, Sir, give us this bread always. It kind of sounded like they were resorting to asking politely now. <laughs> the Greek word for sir, kurios, uh, uh, it's, it's how you would address an authority or a lord or a master. We can also take from the Greek word that um, 
that the one that they are that they are addressing, which I think this is pretty neat, he is the possessor of something, and he has the power to grant whatever it is that they're asking from him. So it's just a side note, but I think it's pretty interesting in light of the context. So I don't know if this is the intention here, but it appears a bit like they're putting forth their own effort again. It puts me in mind of a child who's trying to get something, and after several attempts, they resort to saying, please. Jude, he's two years old, and he does that. He whines, and he cries after something, and then all of a sudden, he looks real cute. He's like, please, Daddy. And of course, that's when he gets what he wants. And I could be wrong about this, but that's what it looked like to me. It's almost like they're, they're asking politely, we want this, just please, could you please give it to us, sir? So from here, I'm going to skip a lot just for the sake of time. The big emphasis from here on out is going to continue to be on Jesus as the bread of life. So just kind of focus in on that and and really how God has been working to draw their attention to him as the bread of life over and over and over. And they continue to miss that point. We all know the story, I'm sure, of how God provided for the Jews as they left Egypt. He fed them the manna. Number, numbers um, 11, 7 through 9 says, When the dew fell on the camp in the night, the manna fell with it. So God provided for them then. He gave them what they needed to live. He fed them. And this crowd is still kind of set on seeing that. They're set on really seeing the, the, the physical miracles manifested so, you know, you just prove, prove to us that you're this bread from heaven. Give us this bread. They're still looking for something to meet their physical needs. But Christ points out in verse 39, your fathers ate the manna and yet they died. What I'm offering you, you can eat and not die. Bold statements that Jesus is making about himself. So Jesus says the bread of life. What does this mean? Well, let's look at some of these verses throughout here. And I'm just going to blow through these really quick. John 6, 51, he says, I'm the living bread that comes down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Verse 53, so Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Verse 54, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Whoever feeds on my flesh, verse 56, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I am in him. In 57 and 58, as the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. I know there's so much more here, and we can get into all kinds of theological truths. And man, as I'm going through here, I'm thinking like, what were you thinking, Jason, trying to cover all this? There's so many good things that you could stop and stop and kind of camp out on and but we don't have time for that. So you know, what I really want us to get again, Jesus says the bread of life. What does that mean? Well, I'm just going to throw out a few points here that, that I think it means from the text. And again, there could even be more of these. We could probably sit around and, and really just enjoy talking about what it means that Jesus is the bread of life. But some things that really stood out to me as I'm reading this and as I'm thinking about other texts, and, and I, I'm going to, through these points, I'm going to emphasize something over and over 
That being that Jesus is the one sent down from heaven by God with purpose. Okay? Because he says that over and over again. And that's what they were looking for. They want to send it from heaven. Send us the manna from heaven. Give us this food. And he keeps saying over and over, I'm the one, I'm the one, I'm the one. So I'm going to emphasize that as we go through these points. Jesus is the one sent down from heaven by God with the purpose of giving eternal life. The bread I give is my flesh. Philippians 2, 6-8. through 8. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So God's purpose is giving Jesus, and I mean literally giving him, giving him up to the point of death. And he says, the bread I give is my flesh. I give that for your life. I give my life so that you might live. John 3, 16 through 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We're all familiar with this. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So Jesus is the one sent down from heaven by God with the purpose of giving eternal life. And he ultimately did that by laying down his life on the cross. The second point, Jesus is the one sent down from heaven by God with the purpose of being the only way for eternal life. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He said something, you know, things very similar all throughout uh, chapter 6 that we've read here. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the only way. And that was God's purpose. He sent him down for that purpose. He didn't send down multiple ways. He didn't say that you can work this out on your own. He sent him down as the only way to have eternal life. Third point, Jesus is the one sent down from heaven by God with the purpose of being the only means of lasting satisfaction. As we've already talked about, we pursue all kinds of things to fill us up and to satisfy us. But the point here is Jesus being the bread of life. We eat this flesh, we drink this blood, and we are satisfied, and it lasts forever. And it's complete, and it's full. John 10.10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life. And have it abundantly, abundantly. We all know what that means. We've heard it in sermon after sermon after sermon. It's the fullness of life that's only found in God through Jesus Christ. He came to give us lasting satisfaction in Christ. And I love, you know, verse 10 there. The thief comes in only to, uh, to steal and to kill and to destroy. He wants you to constantly seek after those false cravings. He wants you to be satisfied with everything in this world, all the desires of your heart, because ultimately it ends with you being dead and destroyed and worn out and busted, whether it be in this life or it carries you to your grave. Pursuing after things that are only temporary satisfaction will result in a destroyed life, and that makes the enemy happy. And then the, the fourth point is really kind of more directed 
at us. If Jesus is the only means of eternal life and lasting satisfaction, then the only way we can have it is what? He said it over and over again, and it's the thing that none of us wants to hear. Eat his flesh and drink his blood. Oh, my goodness. See, guys, the crowd couldn't see beyond the physical. And when they hear this, I mean, this is nasty talk. They don't want to hear that. How are we going to eat his flesh? How are we going to drink his blood? This is, this is crazy. This is hard to understand, they say. But listen, it, it's simply, yet profoundly, nothing more than a call to believe that he is, as I've said, the one sent down from God as the bread of life. It's a call to believe. And if, if it's more, if we're supposed to take that literally, then everyone sitting in this room who claims to be followers of Christ is hopeless because you don't have his flesh and you don't have his blood to literally drink. It's simply a call to believe that he is the bread of life that came down. Take part in this. Believe, trust in the fact that I'm the one that's sent from God. That's what he keeps emphasizing over and over and over. I have come from God. Believe in me. I am the bread of life. You eat this bread, you will never be hungry again. And you will have eternal life. Romans 10, 9 through 11. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with it one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scriptures say, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. So all this crazy talk that David Platt said pushes people away, Jesus was calling them to this life of complete joy and satisfaction in what? In knowing Him. And the funny thing is, is that at the end of all that, they can't see out of the, the, you know, the blind mindset that they have that it's really all about me and all about what I think is best for me and all about what I think is going to make me happy and full and satisfied. And so they hear this stuff. They hear this offer. It's the greatest offer known to man. And yet the crowds walk away. I mean, it's, they, you know, to them, there had to be more to it. There had to be something that they had to do, something that they had to labor after. I've got to add something to this. Come on, what can I do? No, God is doing this work. He's offering you this gift of eternal life, and it's in me, Jesus Christ, His Son. Believe. They couldn't see past themselves and what they thought they needed. So you and I... And we have two choices from this text. You can grumble and you can complain and you can take offense and you can follow the mindset of the crowds here and you can live and you can labor in pursuit of things that are going to leave you wanting more. They're not just going to leave you wanting more. They're going to suck the life out of you. What you think is going to give you life is going to rob you. The the thief comes to steal. He wants to rob your joy. So it's going to suck the life out of you and it's going to leave you for dead. If you look at the end here of John 6, 60 through 64, it says, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to this? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. And I think, I believe here, the point that Jesus is making is 
you won't believe that I'm the bread of life that came down from heaven, then what if you see me ascend back into heaven? You're still not going to believe because you're so focused on yourself and what you want and what you think life is all about and what you think is going to satisfy all of your cravings. He goes, what I'm offering you here is spirit and life and you want nothing to do with either of them because you live in the flesh and the flesh will not accept the things of the spirit. Your other choice is to believe and and live in the joy of knowing that there is no other means of eternal life or lasting satisfaction. There's only one way, and that is through Jesus, the bread of life, the Holy One sent of God. Uh, The last few verses here in um, 67 through 69. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So they taste and they see that the Lord is good. And I think that's really, you know, a good way to summarize all of this. Take the bread, taste and see that the Lord is good. And I want to call you this morning to believe in the saving power. Maybe some of you already have a relationship with Christ, you know Christ in this way. <laughs> I do too. But you don't think that I still pursue these false cravings, that I'm still looking for joy and satisfaction in all the wrong places. It's all the time. I want to feel comfortable. I want to be happy. What can I do? That's the number one thing that I pray. It's God help me to know and understand what real joy and satisfaction in you means in the light of my mess of life and all the things that I pursue after and I want to make me that, that I want to make me feel better Lord I want to know what it means to be satisfied in you and you alone and he's kind of chipping away at that and I think it's you know he's chipping away at all of us in that and, and, and I think it's part of being conformed to the image of God and that's the work that he's doing so but I want to call all of us to just to, to believe for the first time or to just have kind of a, a renewed faith and trust in this, this Savior, this saving power of Jesus. Confess that He's Lord. Confess Him as the bread of life that gave His life to death so that you might live this life with lasting joy and lasting satisfaction in Him and Him alone. Believe, uh, as, as Peter said, to whom shall I go? You, you are the one that has eternal life. There's nowhere else to turn. You are the one that has these words of eternal life. Trust Him. Give your life to Him. Don't walk away grumbling and pursuing things that are going to leave you, as I've already pointed out, wanting more and more and more. And they're really going to leave you more empty than you already are. And, you know, if you're doing this for the first time, you don't have to say anything special. It's really just acknowledging in your own way before God these truths that we've talked about this morning. That you are the bread of life. That you are the one that gave your life for me. You died so that I might live. Lord, I want that life. And Remember, as I told you about my testimony, I didn't say much more than my life is yours. Do whatever you want with me. You know, we make it this formula of things that we have to say. And really, God just wants you He wants your heart. And if you can acknowledge these truths, this work's already been done in your heart. 
just confess it to God. So let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this opportunity to tell these group of people, this group of people, these things about you, about the bread of life. Lord, I pray that you, that we would take delight in you as the life-giving sustainer. Lord, I pray that you help us to see the cravings of our hearts and the things that are really leaving us feeling empty, the pursuit of joy and the pursuit of happiness and false things and in lusts and the desires of our heart. Lord, we want real joy. We want real satisfaction. And I know, according to your word that we saw this morning, all throughout the scripture, you're pointing us to know you. And that's where real joy comes from. I want that. And I'm pretty sure that I'm not going to experience that completely and perfectly until, as you said today, that, that you raise me up on the last day. And you perfect me and you get this body of sin and death out of the mix here, Lord. But we can still taste and see right now that the Lord is good. That you give us eternal life and that life starts now and it lasts forever. And Lord, I pray that, um, that you work in the hearts of these of your people here. Lord, if there's someone here today that doesn't know you, I pray that this isn't a message that they run from but that they delight in because it is ultimately rooted in you, knowing you. In Jesus' name, amen.